the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. And Ben, I I, I wanted to start this because obviously we've been away for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And in that time, I think I've been trolled by a Facebook algorithm. Oh, really? What's it done? (laughs) Well... On Facebook, I put up a little um, picture. It's basically, I think you've seen it, haven't you? It's me and you, it looks like, but it's actually from a film, a very famous alien film. Yes. And I've said we've been abducted by aliens. We're back in a couple of weeks with a with a new episode. So I put that up. And then <laughs> while we were away, I got, you know, you get those messages from Facebook. It said... Your post is getting so much more engagement than your normal posts. Oh, God. And I thought, oh, great. Everyone's a critic, including the algorithm. We say we're going away for a couple of weeks, and Facebook goes nuts and goes, oh, that's your most popular post ever. So that's how we get the most listens. We yeah, don't we just publish got... <laughs> a podcast. <laughs> yeah. Basically, we should just put out dead air every week and then Facebook will think we're doing much better. And it did make me chuckle. I thought, yeah, the idea of us being uh, slightly... <laughs> I felt a bit offended. I wanted to reply and I thought, no, it's just some kind of computer program that's just worked it out. So I can't really be angry at it. <laughs> You'll be arguing with Hal. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, exactly. Peter, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I couldn't possibly play your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a much better howl than mine, I like it. <laughs> that was, that's quite a sexy howl, I thought. Yeah, sexy howl. <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, since we were abducted, uh, and obviously we weren't, I have had, uh, well... I went for a lovely holiday in North Norfolk, which sounds like I am Alan Partridge. But, uh, <laughs> I had made that connection, but I, now you mentioned uh, it. Yeah, North Norfolk Digital. <laughs> to, to be fair, to people in the UK, they'll get that connection. To people anywhere else in the world, they probably won't. But essentially, where I went, Cromer, is I think it's probably like... If you think America and Maine, it's like that. But only if you are thinking the shellfish. It's kind of famous for its crab. But it's also a beautiful part of the world. It's sort of well away from everywhere. Lovely beaches for the dog to run around. And I've had a chance to uh, read the book that I'm going to talk to you about. Excellent. When when you said you were going to put up the we've been abducted, it did make me laugh, obviously, because I think it sort of it's it sort of alludes to close encounters of the third kind and all of that. Yeah. But one of the topics that I've always wanted to cover, and I suddenly found myself with the time to read the book, is well, the main book is uh, alien implants and. So if you don't know like what an alien implant is, you, you can probably guess. It's people who find that within their body they have something that they can't explain and doctors can't explain. It's, it, you know, it could look like a piece of glass, it could look like a piece of metal, but there's no scar. It shows up on an X-ray, that, that sort of thing. That's what we're talking about. And I thought that was a really... 
recent thing, but actually, I during the research on this, I discovered that um, March 1957, there was a chap called Long John Nebel who ran Great a radio name. show. Yeah, I know, it's brilliant. And uh, he has an interview with a ufologist called John Robinson. And John Robinson recounts this story about being kidnapped by aliens in 1938 and being kept subdued by small earphones placed behind his ears. By the way, during this research, Long John Nebel, he is like the original us. He is a paranormal broadcaster before I think most people realise such a thing. He's kind of like Coast to Coast AM before Coast to Coast AM. And the right. fact that he's called Long John Nebel just uh, fills me with joy. But uh, we, we've, we've got to work on our names, haven't we? I, yes, I know. I, we sort of need a pirate name. Yeah. yeah. I, I think you should just go for Big Ben. <laughs> <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'll go for Pedantic Pete, maybe. <laughs> No, I love Long John. That's brilliant. It is good. So, so he was like he, uh, you know, if he was around now, he'd he'd be like the biggest paranormal podcast. Well, yeah, he's kind of like Art Bell before Art Bell. Yeah, right. Okay. Mm. Wow. Um, sorry, I just wanted to go back. So you said this guy was talking about this in abduction. Did you say nineteen thirty-eight? Uh, well, so uh, around the, that time, the, the interview the is the interview is fifty-seven, and yeah. the abduction is thirty-eight. Which is that's quite amazing because that's yeah, that's pre really the kind of UFO hysteria really kicking off, isn't it? It is. It is, and I think most people think of including me until I read this i think a lot of people think that betty and barney hill is kind of yeah, like the first the, the first yeah 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 the interrupted journey their book all, all of that which is the 60s but this this predates that and that got me more interested because i've i sort of wanted to go to the the sort of the epicenter of where uh, alien abduction implants come from and this drew me to the book that I read, which is Terry Lovelace and the Incident at Devil's Den. So Terry Lovelace, he is, well, he was an assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont. He was stationed with the USAF at the Whiteman Air Force Base. Uh, and so much more besides, he has a law degree, he is he passed the Michigan bar exam this is not a man who is out to make up stories he's yeah, he's it's a, not just some random nutter who is driving around no no exactly and by the time he writes this book in well just after 2012 he'd been married for 42 years he's he's a he's a proper person uh, when I say a proper person, he's a he's an individual with credibility, yeah. And and the most credible part of it all is probably the the stationing at the Whiteman Air Force Base because that is the place which is home to a squadron of nuclear armed B fifty twos, and uh. he was there for five and a half years. 
They also have, by the way, uh, the 351st Strategic Missile Wing stationed there. So they've got dozens of missile silos and they're spread out all across rural western Missouri. So this is like this is a proper military destination. He's a properly qualified person. But the key thing that you should know is that this airbase is half a day drive away from the destination that is known as Devil's Den. So it's another one where there is some connection, which seems like a real theme, between UFO phenomena and uh, nuclear, nuclear weapons, yes. nuclear weapons, or yes. nuclear development. Yes, absolutely. His first experience that he remembers, and this is where it's well, he remembers in conscious memory. It starts in January 1975, incidentally, the month I was born. And he says that his crash phone rings at 2 a.m. So it, a crash phone is like, um, it's, it's an emergency phone, put it that way. And he gets this call because a missile technician who is servicing an ICBM fell inside a silo. And you don't want that to happen, do you? No, and these things are enormous. I mean, they're like yeah. they're like space rockets. And he says the dispatch was unusually thin on facts, and also the radio was unusually quiet um, without the routine chatter. But it was his job to drive the ambulance to the silo. And he goes there with his colleagues. So everybody, as you might imagine, is paired up. And he's paired up with a gentleman called Toby. And it's 18 miles to the silo where he he has to go and rescue this guy. And it's in the middle of a soybean field. When he gets there, he says there's a dozen security police cars... 30 guys with M16s running around, looking up. He said he found the captain in charge and this guy ordered him to park the ambulance and to stay put. Toby, he says, notices a matte black diamond-shaped object hovering 20 or so feet above the missile silo. He says it's about the size of a full-size van and... Terry's looking around. He says, well, I was looking for wires or some explanation about how this thing could just sit in the midair. And he says, like, mentally, it's difficult to process. And he says he just watched this thing sit there for about 15 minutes. Couldn't find any reason for it being there. He's driven out into the middle of, like, a soybean field where this ICBM missile is is kind of hidden and then he, his mate sees this thing hovering above it. I'm imagining like the, the little green empty husks coming out of it, like edamame. They're just throwing them out. We'll just stop <laughs> off. We'll have some edamame. <laughs> There's aliens popping them in, bit of salt, chucking them out the back. <laughs> it's just raining, raining uh, edamame husks or soybean husks. 
Sorry, that just came into my mind. It detracts from the story, but it That is the, the most middle-class comeback I've ever had <laughs> on a UFO story in my life. <laughs> yeah, the UFO conspiracy. It's all edamame and sushi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do like a California roll. Um, Sorry, and- I, I've, I've derailed us. So, so there's, a, there's, a, there's a craft... There's a craft. In this soya bean field, I'm picturing something like from the X-Files. You know those scenes in the X-Files where you've yes. got uh, just a normal farm? Or, um, oh, God, there was that uh, that old movie where uh, the Andromeda strain as well, the Andromeda oh, strain, where it's yeah, a big yeah, field yeah, yeah, yeah. and then you go down. So I've got the silo, I've got the picture, and then suddenly there's this this UFO floating above and this guy's fallen into the silo. I'm with right. it. Yeah, yeah. So it's matte black. It's 20 feet above the the silo. Terry can't find a reason for it. And he says it's difficult to process. And he says he watches this thing for 15 minutes and then it just shoots off to the east with a dead stop to the speed of a bullet without accelerating. So this thing just moves in the blink of an eye. Right. So later on, obviously this has disturbed him somewhat. He is, in inverted commas, debriefed and their reports are rewritten. So his CO says that the object was an experimental helicopter and it's top secret. Right. And he says in his book, we knew then that he was full of shit and he had no idea what we saw. (laughs) We were sternly warned not to talk about it and were asked to surrender any drawings we may have made. So this is this is 75, right? So yeah. that's the incident. This is the craft that they see. Going forward, 1977, two years later, Toby and he are working the night shift at the ER. And that again, their partners, they've become friends and toby says to him why don't we go on a camping trip so terry he says he enjoys wildlife photography and he's got a new camera he wants to try photography is not allowed on the base by the way so he's got nowhere to try his camera out and he says toby and i both city kids we've never been out into you know the the wilderness or the um, the national parks and neither of them had been camping before. So there's plenty of National Forest campgrounds all around the base. Yeah. But Toby convinces him to take the long drive, so half a day's drive, to Devil's Den. And he says it's worth it because there's a high plateau where he can stargaze, and which is something that he wants to do. But there's also a place where... I, Terry, can photograph wildlife and scenery. And he says he was, again, staying in the camps, the the park's campground, because he says it's just, you know, just everybody's there. We want to go somewhere where nobody else is going. And he he describes staying in the, um, the designated camping spot as camping in a parking lot in the woods. You get your hookups, though, which is always good, but carry on. 
<laughs> well, at this point, you know, they're, they're pooing behind a tree. <laughs> Fair enough. But Toby convinces them to to basically is trespassing. They trespass deep into the nature preserve, right. which is off limits, and they set up their camp there at the edge of a plant, uh, a plateau, and it's on the side of a tree line. So that when we talk about the fact that they are trespassing, it's not that you're not allowed to walk there. You're just not supposed to camp there. This, right, it's a like, no camping zone. It's like not disturbing the wildlife or whatever. It's not like, it's not a big conspiracy. It's just a place you can't camp. Yeah, yeah. So he says, on the first night we get there, we're exhausted from the hike because there's only so far you can take your car. And they've set up their tent and they're just getting settled down for the night. They're cooking their food. They've got their stove on. They've got their their fire on. And the stars are out and they're beginning to think, oh, this is a, you know, this is a great escape from being in the military base. It's sounding brilliant the way you're describing it. I'd love that. little schmore on the go, on the fire. It'd be lovely. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm thinking chilli, rice, stars. Yeah, Yeah, it's going to be brilliant. Edamame. (laughs) Just leave it with the edamame. (laughs) It's a camping classic. (laughs) Literally nobody has ever taken edamame camping. Nobody. No, no, you're right. Okay, carry on. All right, I'll I'll stick with the the, the chilli and the s'mores. Nine o'clock. Toby notices that there are three stars on the horizon and he says they make up a perfect triangle. I'm sure you can all guess where this is going. I can see where this is going, yeah. He says it's small at first, but all three lights move in perfect unison and it soon became clear that this was one solid object and not three independent lights orchestrated to move in perfect formation. He says we watched it ascend and grow closer and much larger until it was directly over our campsite. We noticed that as it passed through a star field, it blotted them until it moved past. Then they would blink back on. So it was one solid object. So so he's he's like observing this. It, it is clear to him that it's a craft. And, and is, is there a feeling this is... The same type of craft that was seen by the by the missile silo, or something different. Well, we'll 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 come on to that. All right, I'm jumping ahead. Okay, because he says, like the whole forest becomes silent. An hour before they'd seen this, the the noise in the forest was alive. There were crickets and tree frogs and wind and everything, and suddenly. As they're watching this, they realise everything has gone deadly silent. And also, the other thing they notice is that they become suddenly disinterested in this craft and suddenly drowsy. And he says it's not like they were tired. It was almost like they were sedated. And this is stretching over a time. So three hours passes. So by midnight... They've just decided they're going to get in the tent and go to sleep. And he says the apathy of this still puzzles him to this day. He doesn't know why they're so apathetic. But 
A few hours later, 3 a.m. to be precise, he wakes up and through the side of the tent are these brilliant multicolour lights, white, yellow, orange, and they're literally waking them up with their bright intensity. And he looks through, so... This, obviously, it's a two-man tent. He looks through. Uh, there's a small net window at the back of the tent, and he looks across the forest, and he says the whole thing is lit up, and he describes it being lit up like a football match. And he also says, bizarrely, that his clothing and boots are all askew, and he, he doesn't sort of go in on that, but... He says, like, yeah, this this isn't how I left them. So, so oh God, well, there's all kinds of implications from that, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so he, he nudges Toby and they both look outside. So Toby wakes up and they both look outside across the meadow. And he says there's what he describes as an enormous UFO, as large as a five-storey office building. He says it's triangular shaped and each leg of it being about a city block in length so by each leg he means each um sort of straight part of the triangle so it's a as as a city block a city block a city block he says it's 50 feet tall and it's completely stationary about 30 feet over the meadow floor and he says there's this noise. It's like a low bass hum or a drone. He says it's not so much loud, but it's powerful. He can feel it. It's it, it it's coming through his chest. And rather than like it drowning out noise in his ears, which is what he thought, you know, is that what's drowning out the noise of the forest? No, it's it's like this thrumming through his body he says it's like standing next to a running diesel train or a large industrial machine and then he sees them he sees what look like children walking around the meadow underneath the triangle there's this column of white light it's about 30 feet in diameter shining down from the center of the triangle and he says we watched as these little people walked into the light and then they just dissolved one by one until they were gone. The hum stopped and the corner lights all returned to brilliant white. The white cylinder from the middle stopped and the thing rose, a, sort of like a hot air balloon. And then it made a one-third rotation, so it just turns on its axis, continues its ascent, picking up speed until it was high in the sky and then, again, gone in the blink of an eye. It just goes. Gone. Well, what's amazing me about that description, that I was just, it's weird that we were talking about Close Encounters earlier because there was so much of that. I, I almost was picturing Close Encounters in my head, you know, the, the lights... The different lights coming through the tent reminded me of the scene with the child in Close Encounters where the lights come through. The location, you know, there's images coming into my mind from the film as well. 
the the size and the vastness of the craft. And then when you mention the sound, you know, there's that amazing bit in Close Encounters of the Third Kind where the spaceship responds and it shatters all the glass because, you know, it's almost a, a, a sound you can feel rather than necessarily hear. And then you've got the children's aliens in the white light. It's intriguing yes. that... Because from from my... Let me just have a quick look. So Close Encounters, I think, came out late 19... 19- 77 so this incident must have been roughly around the same time i'm not, I'm not saying that that means that you know they're making it up but it, it it is amazing how many similarities were going through my mind as you were describing it for something that was occurring at the same time as this movie was about to come out if not out yeah yeah no agreed and you you've got all of those tropes of like the small childlike aliens um, the giant craft. Yeah, you're right. You're right. But 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 what's weird is, for, unless unless some of the, some of that was almost um, tropes of what you would have previously seen as UFO imagery or encounters. But actually, a lot of what you're talking about probably did those kind of images and tropes came through Close Encounters onwards. So I think that's really interesting in terms of the timeline. I've got a few thoughts on that, which we'll probably come back to. But yeah, that was amazing. That description is so close to elements of Close Encounters. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. It, it is. And like the... So I think that's probably where the similarities stop, but there are other things which crop up in that film which kind of relate to this. So, for example, after the incident, he talks about having severe sunburn all over his body. And that is something which comes up in uh, Close Encounters. Yeah, which drives his face is half sunburned, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he he even says, like, the soles of his feet were burned. And they were terribly hydrated. They even had to go to hospital for a couple of days. Wow. And when they were there, he says they were interrogated separately by two men in business suits who identified as coming from the Office of Special Investigations, which is the investigative arm of the USAF security police. Right. Um, But they're sounding quite men in black, like. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he says that they demanded that he hand over the film that he'd taken during the trip. And he says, well, I left my camera home. I didn't, didn't have it. And he even had to have his wife back up that story because they yeah. wouldn't believe him. I bet that didn't go down well. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Bend over, please. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get a camera in there. No. <laughs> um, he says that his car and home were searched. He was interrogated twice. Um, and this is when... Toby begins to feel the full force of it. And he says Toby begins to turn to drink. And oh, okay. So he he Yeah, the experience and the aftermath kind of yeah. starred him, basically. Wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. 
Um, Toby gets reassigned and they were ordered not to have any contact with each other. And um, Which in itself is cruel, isn't it? If, uh, oh, it's if so, so cruel. For whatever happened, that they've shared this thing and then they're now told they've got to kind of not communicate with each other. There's no support. You must feel even more isolated, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Toby dies homeless on the oh. street in 1982. It's awful. Oh, that's terrible, yeah. Oh. Um, and and he says, you know, ever since that incident, he's uncomfortable. This is Terry being outside, open spaces. He always keeps a loaded gun next to him. And um, he always has his, his light on. But, and this is where it gets super interesting. He begins to be a runner and he notices as he starts to just run for fun that on his right leg, there's a spot about the size of a half dollar that goes completely numb every time he gets to about two miles. I can't imagine running for two miles but that's, that's what he says <laughs> my whole body gets completely numb after about 200 yards so yes pretty, i don't know what he's complaining about <laughs> mine mine would be so numb because i would have died yeah but he says it would remain numb for about 30 or so minutes and then in 2012 he has an x-ray of the leg uh, and this is following an accident and he and the doctor's spot, there's a metal object the size of about a postage stamp just underneath what he calls his numb spot. And there's no scar to indicate how this thing gets into his body. And according to a radiologist that examines him, absent a scar, he says he would have had to have been born with this thing. And this X-ray starts to trigger all of these terrible images which go back to 1977. So and he has, he has like, some kind of flashbacks as this is going on then? Yeah, he does. Wow, he does. Okay. And then in the book, he sort of pulls out his childhood memories. And when he goes right back to being a child, he describes what he calls these monkey men that come into his room at night and they terrify him. And he said he would try to sleep in the same room as, as his parents. And one night his dad has sort of had enough and he says, look, you can come into our room tonight, but after this, you really need, do need to sleep in your own bedroom. And he's obviously panicking. He's like, well, this is terrifying. I don't, you know, I can't, I can't do this. But that night after school, that day, the following day after school, his dad brings back this tape and he says, well, look, this is the tape we use to stop monkey men coming into your bedroom. And he says, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. So his dad puts all this tape around his door and this keeps him happy. And after that, nothing particular happens for a good few months. Well, gorilla tape will do that. It's you know. It will, yeah. It'll, <laughs> yeah. it'll, 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 it'll solve anything. Yeah. <laughs> and then he sees a UFO, 
And this experience where he sees this craft, it spooks his parents and his paranoia about it causes his sisters to tease him. And there's a realisation in the family, whether they admit it or not, that the monkey men must be real. So they take him to a doctor and the doctor asks his parents to leave and the doctor says, come on, tell me what's what's been going on. You can trust me. And he puts his trust in the wrong person. He tells this doctor what's been going on. And he tells him about these vivid experience of lights at eight years old and this big craft. But the doctor calls his parents back in and says, you know, what have you been letting your son watch? He's obviously been watching sci-fi movies. He completely betrays the trust. Right. And so he's got these two incidents. He's got this, this... child incident which he kind of forgets about then he's got this incident at devil's den in 77 which is kind of preceded in 1975 by seeing this craft above the missile silo but he kind of puts it all to one side until in 1987 he is in a bookshop and he sees a book which freaks him out. And this is what sort of prompts him to write this story. On the cover of that book is an alien grey. And this causes him, again, another mixture of nightmares and anxiety, which impact on his life and relationships. And he gets... A regression back to 1977. This is how he tries to solve it. And he discovers, for example, through the regression, that Toby took them to the camping spot because he knew it was where the aliens would land. And oh, so he, in some way Toby was in on it or being influenced. Is that, is that the implication? Right, yeah, wow, yeah, okay. exactly. Wow. And, and he also discovers that they took him twice during that incident taking you know bodily fluid samples but they only explain his clothing being yeah okay yeah but they took toby once and it's at this point that he realizes that he's had a lifetime of contact the space people are the monkey men and they've been with him since he was a kid and and then he he sort of recounts these very peculiar disturbing things like um so the uh the person who's regressing him says to him so how many humans did you see and he says oh 50 or 60 a lot of people some of the humans were crew members they ignored us uh, tell me terry tell me what did the human crew members wear they were wearing tan-coloured flight suits with orange insignia on the rank of their rank on their shoulders, and this it's a really bad fashion sense. <laughs> <laughs> By the sounds of it, he so he is seeing like humans working with aliens on this craft. And then he talks about walking past this long wall of aquariums 
And he says, I don't want to look at them. They're dreadful things. They do horrible things there. They were ugly. And the person who is doing the regression says, turn around, look at them. And he says what he can see. He says they're things, they look like puppies, but reptilian lizard-like puppies floating in pink water. They're ugly with big eyes and one twitches. And he says he screams. And he comes out of the regression and it does help to an extent. But he carries on talking. He says, I'm talking on autopilot now and I'm seeing things playing out and relaying them. He says, I'm seeing an entire city a hundred times larger than the triangle of five blocks. It was so different. On Earth, there's this curve, so the horizon is as far as you can see. It's flat, and I could see as far as my eyesight allowed. So he's on this on this craft with these huge cities, seeing right across. And he says the depth of field make it, made it feel like it was a 3D movie scene. He says I could make out beings walking further away from us, and... This is when you sort of go, okay, this is a craft similar to Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right, the big mothership type thing. Right, right, yeah, absolutely. But it's the the whole evidence for Terry, it's it's the implant, it's these regressions and these memories. And it's interesting because I've always as I said at the start of this, I've always been interested in um, alien implants. And then off the back of this, I started looking into Dr. Roger Lear. He unfortunately died, but he worked on patients who he believed had undergone alien implant surgery. And he found incredibly mysterious objects embedded in people's legs Uh, well different parts of their body but um specifically he talks about their their legs and then there's this film which is worth watching called patient 17 where he uh it follows him taking an implant to a new hampshire lab for testing and they discover that it contains rare earth elements some of them even toxic to the human body and even more compelling it seems to emit electromagnetic frequencies indicating the object could be some kind of communication device or tracking device and that 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 was that was the jeremy corbell movie wasn't it yeah it was yeah jeremy corbell wrote that yeah 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 yeah. i mean (laughs) I I've I, I saw it a long time ago and um, I, I kind of remember bits of it. There was there was something about it where it just it felt like it had already set out its stall before it started. Do you know what I mean? I, I find the Jeremy Corbell stuffs often like that, but there there were I, I'm with you. There were bits where you just went, oh, that's really interesting, but it didn't seem to explore them enough for me. But um, I don't know if you agree. Yeah, no, absolutely I do, absolutely. And all of this, it's is it evidence 
I don't know. It's it's sort of something that might stand up in a court of law, but Terry's but, story. But a few questions though. So if we go back to Terry, did did he have this thing removed or? Did it remain in his leg? Do we know that? And, and, you know, I guess what's going through my mind is, and it's the thing with these alien implants, it's like, you got this thing, right? you got this thing that if you get it out, you can test it. And, you know, rare earth elements and all that stuff is fine. But, you know, there's a bit of me that wants it to be, you know, a microchip that has been, you know, was put in his leg in 19-whatever, 30... 38 and you know that technology wasn't even close you know what i'm you know where i'm getting at yeah is yeah there any do, evidence yeah. that they ever took this thing out or tested it yeah no completely completely and it, i think it's it's a really tricky thing because there is no conclusive evidence from any of the investigations into the alien implants as to where they come from because of course there isn't but you do have this evidence, as happened with Terry, that uh, there's no scar, there's no entry wound, and right. that is a that particularly is weird thing. And, where, where, and if I'm going back, the other thing that really struck me is, you know, we started off talking about this story and Terry and him being on the nuclear missile base seeing you know this guy falling in the silo them seeing a ufo and then the incident at devil's den coming later and him being a you know having these encounters as a child and the lack of scar it just made me think if he if his first contact and let's say for argument's sake he was implanted when he was a kid what amazes me about that is he ended up working on a nuclear missile site and you know what i mean is there some if you go with it does this mean that in some way these aliens knew he was going to end up there and have implanted this thing or is there something connected with it where they've almost pushed him in this direction of you know, military and nuclear. That was just really going through my head, that connection. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I I completely agree. And it's, it's a... It's one of those things where you, you have to take the evidence at face value from the witness as he presents it i think yeah and and that's why i started off by talking about his credentials because all of this could completely be a fantasy and you know the product of something that we don't fully understand but something that is probably like medical uh or you know something in that category but when you pair his experience so we've got like the key points of this evidence are he is he has his report rewritten when he sees this hovering craft in 75 which in itself is interesting because it's like like you said he has a credible background and he was in that job 
So, you know what I mean? It's not like he's some guy in his bedroom who's interested in the topic, who's watched too many movies, who says, oh, I'm just going to... Or even maybe believes in their own mind that they've... It's the connections of the nuclear thing, his career path, all these elements just make it very intriguing. Yeah, no, they do. They absolutely do. I'm... His book is is intriguing, and I think to get the full picture of it, one has to read his book. But I do feel like something bizarre happened to him. Well, the other thing I was thinking, Ben, as you, and it's something we've mentioned on the podcast a few times, is as soon as you started describing the experience in the tent and pretty much grabbing huge elements from close encounters of the third kind, which was either about to come out or was out at the time that the incident at Devil's Den happened, I just went, oh, God, that feels too good to be true. So it immediately made me sceptical. But as it's been going on, it just made me think it feels very trickster spirit, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it it definitely does. It definitely if, does. if you were going to set somebody up as a little trickster spirit, make them have this UFO experience that feels like it could be a plot or a subplot in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and someone like me is going to sit there and go, well, this is just, this this guy's got a vivid imagination and has seen too many movies. But you know what I mean? It's almost, if if you were going to deliberately set him up, that was that would be how you would do it. A guy who works on a nuclear missile base. Yeah, completely, completely. And and I think the other the other thing about it is, like, there is a this trope that people who are abducted keep being abducted from childhood, and this yeah. means that those, as he calls them, monkey men, would have to have known that in his future, if they were coming there because of his nuclear connection, they would have to know that that was where he would end up, which I think that's a a tricky supposition to make and, and, and sort of, like, difficult to get your head around, although we don't well, know... Uh, uh, yeah, that is one route. The other route is... You know, you could go even full full sci-fi and say, has the chip been guiding him to end up working at a nuclear missile base? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or the implant, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, whatever his qualifications are or whatever direction he went in, you know, was it was it was it almost part of a master plan, kind of Manchurian candidate-esque? Yeah, yeah. But also the same thing. If you were, if you were working for the government, and were planning on planting an alien conspiracy on the world, this is how you would do it as well. Yeah. Well, again, that's all. My, yeah. Maybe, maybe, maybe a trickster spirit is too paranormal. You know, you, if you were going to set him up, set him up, or or even I was thinking after. You know, you could even go. Sorry, my mind is is whirring with ideas, but maybe he did see something uh, in by the missile silo that they didn't want him, i.e., they the government didn't want him to see. Yeah, and and 
this second experience at Devil's Den could have all been some some theatre to to cloud the story. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't it doesn't explain the thing in his leg, but you know that you could see that happening, couldn't you? How how do we kind of uh, set this guy up for ridicule? Have you seen that Spielberg movie? Well, let's do some bits from that. That'll, yeah, that'll, that'll get him going. So, yeah, not just a trickster spirit. There is, there is almost a conspiracy theory that you could put in there for whatever reason. Or, or it, or it was the other way around. Spielberg yeah. got his information for this. Yeah, it could, it could be either way. Well, but then I, I did think about that. But the timing, you know. You know, you think about pre-production. Yeah, scripts. yeah, of course, uh, of course. I, I, I did think that, but the timing doesn't seem to work unless the timings are out. But yeah, that's that's interesting. That it that it what brilliant disinformation. Although although in a way it backfired because it what took till twenty twelve for, for it to come out. But maybe it was always a long play. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, which which if you follow that thread. If you're the if you're the the uh, the the government CIA guy who set this whole thing up in at Devil's Den, yeah, this will get him. And then the, the guy doesn't mention it for like twenty or thirty years. <laughs> you're probably like, oh my god, you can't go round and say, um, how's your leg feeling? Anything dodgy? <laughs> no, <laughs> oh, look you're at this quite picture right. of a little grey thing. Are they amazing? <laughs> I like genuinely, genuinely, you come away from this story not knowing where to go. But as as I've told our listeners and I've told you before, I've interviewed many people who claim to have alien abduction experiences and they all say this started when they were a kid. I interviewed yeah. one gentleman who like I'm not going to say his name because it's not fair because he hasn't agreed to be on this, but um he told me his first experience with an alien entity was when he was, I think he said, eight years old. And as daft as it sounds, it came into his bedroom, climbed over his toys and urinated on one of his board games. And (laughs) Do we know which one? uh, Yes, (laughs) I do. It was Monopoly. Oh, and well, again, I've, I've felt like you're an monopoly on many occasions. <laughs> <laughs> so I am with them. I don't know whether... I don't... Like, it, it's so trivial that it sounds ridiculous, but I don't know... Like, it's also... sound. It could be completely plausible. I don't know. Yeah. I think there are... Weirdly, uh, we've talked about about various stories on the podcast before, and there's this idea where we've talked about all oh, those kind of simple little things seem more believable. Whereas, whereas in a way, I'm thinking the opposite with this. It's so fantastical that it's like if you were going to make it up, you probably wouldn't make it up this way. Because, you know, you've got the lights, you've got the location, you've got the vastness of the craft, you've got the nuclear connection, you've got you've got Act 1 where you see it by the silo, you've then got, you know, Act 2 where 
you have this incident at Devil's Den with the whole cabang going off and they chill childlike aliens and lights. And then you've got the kind of reveal which ties it back to kind of childhood abductions, which is, you know, often those kind of stories feel too perfect, but this feels like they've thrown the kitchen sink at it, which makes me think there's got to be something in it. I don't know why I'm thinking that, but do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or as, uh, you know, the trickster spirit thing or some kind of conspiracy to go, we're going to just go so over the top, you know. I don't know, I'm just trying to think, if you were going to discredit somebody, you know, they'll an alien you know, a group of aliens dressed as can-can dancers doing a can-can out of the spaceship. Nobody's going to believe it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, completely right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I... I And I, I come away from this going, I don't know what to believe, but I think Terry's got a credible story. It's a interesting tale, and lots of people have alien implants. So I sort of the way i come at it is again with all of these things i don't know it's like down to everybody to make their own mind up yeah i mean the, one of my issues i don't know is issues too strong a word but one of the things that always makes me kind of a little dubious of alien abduction stories are well when it when it comes not alien abduction stories in general but when it comes to these implants are if you were gonna do it you would almost want to you know why wouldn't you take somebody who is likely to be the future president i mean maybe they have you know what i mean it, it's uh, and i this what's intriguing to me about this case of it somebody on a nuclear missile thing it does tie into that narrative of yeah i can see why aliens would be interested in us having that kind of technology i could see aliens wanting to monitor or control somebody who is going to be you know head of the cia or you know president of america you know but a kind of you know when it comes to a kind of biker or a trucker in the woods who's got an implant I, there's a bit of me scratches my head of going all right if you go with it and you're the aliens what what are you getting out of that implant do you know what i mean well or am i being too narrow in my view no no i think i i think you're completely right but i think you're coming at it as i am and everybody else listening comes at it from a human mindset like what do we think that pigeons think we get out of tracking them with tags you know yeah 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 Yeah, what 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 the dolphins think when we tag them like they they don't understand why they're doing it and it feels like it's probably something if if it's true and if it's real and this is a thing that actually happened to terry then perhaps we can't conceive why they did it yeah no you're right just like an edamame can't you know conceive why we're putting them in boiling water man alive i'm starving now (laughs) i'm sorry I, I really interesting though. I, th- um, I haven't read that book, but I'm going to have to borrow that off you because it does sound incredibly fascinating, 
and it seems to have a little bit more going on uh, than maybe the Patient 17 movie did. There seems to be more to it in terms of interest for me. Yeah, yeah, there's there is there's quite a lot of depth to it and there's quite a lot of his emotional uh vulnerability, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. Well, brilliant. I yeah, it's it, it's one of those that's so tantalizing because it's like you would think with alien implants it's a slam dunk, right? Whip it out of your leg, get it tested game over but you know these things are never that simple and even if it did come back you know would it be suppressed or would we even believe it then so so that it's tantalizing in terms of oh here's something that can give you solid proof but once again you were already kind of in your mind going yeah but would i believe it you know yeah 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 no completely and like I think with all these things, as the the notion of our podcast, we just have to be agnostic and go, yep. this yep. is an amazing story. Read yeah, it for yourself. Make your own mind up. I but agree. I would say if you are a listener to this and you have a peculiar thing in your body and genuinely I'm not taking the piss now, if you've, if you've had a an x-ray or something and doctors have refused to look into it and you can't work out why it's there i'd be really interested to know because i do think it's a real phenomena right yeah definitely yep or get in contact with us at, at the tqm podcast and uh yeah we'd love to investigate anything like that right we yeah absolutely i'm not i can't do anything about it but i'd love to know about it <laughs> Well, there's an offer they can't refuse. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, uh, Ben's going to go off to have a nice bowl of uh, salted edamame. I'm going to close the lid on the nuclear missile silo in the back garden. And uh, we'll be back next week with That's more quantum mechanics. A you <laughs> like and subscribe, please. Like, sub- like and subscribe and review. We really appreciate it. And review, it. yes. Thank you. Thank you and very we'll, much. And we'll see you next time on The Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. Thank you. Bye. the quantum mechanics.